0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. No matter where you're listening, I am glad and honored that you have taken the time out of your Tuesday evening to listen to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And as usual, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor.
1: Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program.
0: This is a live interactive call-in program. We enjoy your interaction. We thrive off of your interaction. We look forward to any questions that you may have and also any suggested topics that you may have that you'd like us to discuss in future episodes. Let me go ahead and thank you in advance for your interaction. And Pastor, we have a whole stack of questions to catch up on from last week and even one from the previous week. So let's jump right into it. Uh, Before I get to the question, let me just mention two listeners who shared additional information in relation to the topic you discussed last week, uh, and that was the topic of the Trinity, and they are referring to the fact that the Trinity is also discussed in the Old Testament. There was a WhatsApp comment from St. Martin It says, Good evening. If you read Isaiah 48, 12-16, there's another hint of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Uh, would you like me to go ahead and read those verses? Yes, but? you probably could. All right. Uh, Isaiah 48, 12-16. 48 12 to 16 says hearken unto me O Jacob and Israel my called I am he I am the first I am also the last mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand hath spanned the heavens when I call unto them they stand up together all ye assemble yourselves and hear which among them hath declared these things the Lord hath loved him He also will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken, yea, have called him, I have brought him, and shall make his way prosperous. And verse 16 says, Come ye near unto me, hear ye this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I, and now that the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a verse that uh, clearly has um, the, the Trinity in it. The one who is coming, uh, that will be the Son. And he's sent, and then the Spirit has also sent him as well. So you've got the Trinity there.
0: Well, thank you very much to the individual who sent that in. Pastor, a comment who that came in on Facebook Live uh, last week along the same lines Um uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the study on the Trinity, which I heard on the radio recently, and the evidence presented in both the Old and the New Testaments. Two further supporting scriptures that I did not hear mentioned are as follows. 1 John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, I want to thank the uh, audience for sending in the verses. And let me just say, we didn't try to be exhaustive when we did the study in the Trinity. What we're trying to do is to gather a dossier of um, Bible verses that presents uh, evidence that would support the, the doctrine. So we didn't try to th- deal exhaustively with every verse. We're very thankful for uh, the verses you sent in, and we appreciate the fact that you, um, you yourself are doing your own study.
0: And now for our first question for the evening. Uh, This comes from two weeks ago, Pastor. We're just getting a chance to cover it. It says, Good night, Dr. Murphy. Who is the Lamb? Is the Lamb a servant? And the verses referenced are Revelation 19, verse 9 and 10. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou, do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, And then uh, chapter 22, verse 9. Then the spirit saith unto me, See thou, do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the saints of this book worship God.
1: Uh, yeah, There are two things there, Nathan. The first one has to do with the uh, who is the Lamb. Uh, but this person is suggesting that the, the text that he's using there, that the Lamb is a servant of God. And that uh, he's claimed that he's his servants, he can't be God at the same time. That's, that's, the, that's in just what he's saying. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the, the matter of answering the question, Who the lamb? Uh, it's interesting that the person should ask that question, because from Genesis to Revelation, there is a major theme in the Bible that is central about God's lamb, who's going to come. It's a major uh, doctrine in theology, uh, which has to do with the atonement. If you were to trace the concept of the lamb throughout the Bible, you'll find that the first mention of the lamb is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. You remember when Isaac and uh, Abraham were going to sac- sacrifice his son? Yeah. Uh, Isaac asked a question, where is the lamb? And I like the response that uh, Abraham gave. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. Uh, notice that the, the lamb is going to be, in the case of uh, Abraham and Isaac, is going to be a substitute instead of Isaac. It is going to be the lamb. But the concept is there that the lamb is going to die and it's going to be a substitute. When we come to the book of Exodus, uh, we have mention of the lamb, which is used, the blood of the lamb is used to protect the Israelites and uh, anyone that would take the blood of the lamb and put it on the lentil and the post. So here you've got the lamb... um, Redeeming uh, god 's people and the fact that they 're under the protection of the blood, so that when the deaf angel came uh, they would not suffer uh, death so you, again, you got this concept of the lamb. then when you come to the book of uh, Exodus again, um, we're told the book of Leviticus we are talking about the sacrifices we are told that it 's the lamb that is used to redeem the concept of redemption is there. Uh, when we come to Leviticus chapter 13, verse 24, the lamb is the offered for the trespass offering. It has to do with respect to, to sin. And then the real chapter that deals extensively with the lamb is Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about the Messiah who's coming as a lamb, and he goes as a lamb before the slaughter. Isaiah said he'd be wounded for transgressions. Uh, he be bruised for our iniquities. That speaks of the vicarious death of him on our behalf, taking our sin. And then Isaiah says in verse number 6 of chapter 53, the Lord shall lay on him the iniquity of us all. So he's becoming the substitute, and he's suffering a vicarious death on our behalf. And then it goes on to say he's oppressed and afflicted. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Uh, he's cut off for the land for the transgression of my people. Notice that he's associated there with the amount of transgression and sin. And uh, Isaiah goes on in verse 10, to says that he should make his soul an offering for sin. So the lamb that is coming is going to die a substitute for death, and he's going to die uh, on the behalf of sin. And then an interesting verse in Isaiah 53:11 says, And he shall justify many. Man will become justified to the blood of the Lamb. And, of course, that is fully unfolded in the New Testament. And you remember um, when um, uh, Philip, in the book of Acts, was dealing with the Enoch. Remember when he came back, he was reading the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And he asked the question, of whom spake the prophet of himself Of some other? And then the Bible said that Philip got into the chariot and preached unto him Jesus in other words philip says that isaiah 53 is referring to Jesus the lamb and then when we come to john the baptist in john chapter 1 verse 28 and 30 29 and 36 when the disciples when the people saw Jesus you remember he said behold the lamb of god Takes away the sins of the world. In other words, the Lamb has come. Christ is the Lamb. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, uh, these were the same theme. He said, You're not redeemed with corruptible things or silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus as a Lamb without spot and without blemish. Then, when we come to Revelation, uh, we have the word Lamb used 26 times in the book of Revelation. You have the Lamb standing among the elders. You've got the beasts and the elders falling down before the Lamb. You've got them praising the Lamb, saying that He's worthy because He's redeemed to His blood. Um, you have all creation uh, praising the Lamb as well. And then the, the Lamb opens the book. Um, and then when judgment begins to pour out, they say, Hide this from the wrath of the Lamb. And we can go through the book of Revelation, uh 5, 6 5 verse 1 and 3, uh 7, 9 7-10, 14, 12-11, and, and thirteen 8. You'll find that all of those are pointing to who the Lamb is. So there's no question from Genesis running right through the Scriptures. The Lamb of God is going to come. And when he does arrive, John the Baptist, uh, the greatest of all prophets, points out to him and said he's the Lamb of God. And Peter talks about the Lamb of God dying and his sins being shed. So when the question is asked, who is the Lamb? There's only one Lamb. It's called Jesus Christ, who died a vicarious death uh, on our behalf. And because of his death on our behalf, our sins can be pardoned and forgiven and we can be justified before God. The other passage that he made a reference to um, in um, Revelation chapter 19, and then he mentioned reference to Je- Revelation chapter 2, 22, verse 8. Verse 9. Uh, ver- verse, uh, yeah. I just want to um, refer back to those verses for just a moment. If you just read them again for me, please. Nathan.
0: Yeah. Uh, Revelation 19, 9 and 10 says, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the saints of God. And I fell at the feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou, do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy.
1: Yeah. This guy is suggesting that the lamb here is uh, refused worship. That's what he's suggesting. Mm-hmm. But he misses the point who it is that is speaking here. You remember when John was, um, John chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, that an angel is given the message to send uh, to the churches. In other words, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verse uh, verse number 1, uh, it says there in that passage, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to uh, come to pass, and he sent and signified them by his angel unto. So the, the the servant that he has here is the angel that was sent to deliver the message, but he's he's he, he's uh, conflating the two of them together. That and I want to show you that's the correct. Look at uh, chapter twenty-two, verse eight, and you see uh what it says there twenty two verse eight
0: uh verse eight uh let me pull it up I had verse nine, all right, verse eight says, and I John saw these things and heard them, and when I heard them see and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel notice go ahead, read again. showed me these things
1: yeah see it's, it's, an, it's the same it's the angel there that he's referring to, he's conflating the lamb. With the, because his argument is if the lamb was God, he would accept worship. But he yeah. didn't accept worship. But he's missing the point. It's not the lamb that that's, that's, uh, refused worship. It's the angel that was sent to bring the message. And that becomes very clear when you look at 22 verse number 8. So that's why he's conflating the two together and creating the confusion. Um, I just want to point out something that, it, you know, Christ accepted worship in Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. When the wise men came. Uh, at his birth, they came to worship him. We're told that in Matthew chapter 2, verse number 2. Now, if he was not God, any kind of worship would have been uh, heretical and it would be blasphemous. In John chapter 12, verse 6, the Greeks uh, came to, to and they came to worship him uh, in, in John chapter 12, verse 2. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, God the Father says "When the, to all the angels, let all the angels of God worship him. So the father says to the angels, you worship my son. The point is, if he accepts worship, because we're told to worship one person, one person only, and that is the Godhead. And that is why um, the, the, the confusion is here that he's saying that the the person that refused worship was the lamb, and therefore he could not be God. But that's not what it is. It's the angel that was sent to deliver the message. But in other passages of Scripture... Christ accepted worship. So I'm just trying to clarify there that there's a little bit of confusion, and that's where when you don't—the uh, Bible must interpret the Bible. If we come to the Bible, prejudice, and we have uh, ideas that are contrary to Scripture, we'll always end up where we have a distorted interpretation. So once we have a problem with that, we must trace it in the Bible, let the Bible interpret the Bible. If this person looked at twenty two eight, he would have seen very clearly, it's the angel that refused worship and not the Lamb.
0: That's a a good lesson, a good reminder. Uh, In that case, we only had to go back one verse, but sometimes uh, reading the previous chapter or reading the earlier in that same chapter, getting context. Yeah,
1: a lot of people miss it as well, that the the message that was given uh, to be delivered was given from Jesus to an angel to give it to John. That's the angel that refused to worship when John saw when they wanted to follow and worship him. If you don't read chapter one, verse one, and then read chapter twenty-two, verse eight, you'll never understand who it is that refused to worship, and and, and that's where the clarification comes.
0: Thank you for that very clear explanation. Uh, Revelation twenty-two. Uh, let's see, verse eight. We read that, Pastor. Can these be put clearer? about the glory and worship belongs to El, the highest alone. Is not that so, Dr. Murphy?
1: No, the other thing is that um, the person asks if the lamb is a servant. And uh, we know that if you look at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and you read Isaiah 53, you'll find that the Lord said he was sending his servant. The Messiah is coming as God's servant. The book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 5, said that he became a servant. Uh, and uh, if you look at, uh, perhaps you should read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11.
0: Yeah, let me pull that up Philippians
1: chapter 2, verse 5 to 11.
0: All right, starting in verse 5, he yeah. says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
1: I think that makes it very clear, that uh, even though he was in the form of God, and the same substance of God, and then it says he did not consider equality something to be grasped. The King James God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. So the equality is there. But uh, as, a, as a son, he becomes the servant of Jehovah to fulfill the will of Jehovah. So it doesn't mean because he t- assumed the role of a servant, he's inferior he has taken on that role of redemption. Um, but the person, again, is, is taking the word servant to mean that he's somehow inferior, something that is of a lower standard, of a lower uh, essence or substance. But when you look at the Bible, uh, it's very, very clear that he assumed that role and became a man as a servant. And by the way, you know, when you go to the the Gospels, uh, there are different portraits of Christ. For example, Matthew pr- portrays him as a king that's going to come. Uh, we know that Luke portrays him as the Son of Man, and that links him to um, Daniel when he had the vision of the Son of Man coming to the ancient of days. And then, of course, John uh, puts him as the Son of God uh, in beginning with the Word, and Word was God, and Word was with God. And of course, Luke presents him as a perfect man, uh, etc. So there are different portraits, but each. Uh, is showing some aspect of his ministry and his and his and his um his character and his nature. But uh it doesn't mean that he's king one place and he's servant of God in the book of Mark. Uh and again you have to ask yourself the question why why these different portraits and there's a reason for that. For example, the the, the Jews are looking for the king. The Messiah is going to be king. That's why he's presented in the book of Matthew as the king. Uh, that's why you have a genealogy, and his line is in line of David. When you come to Luke now, he's presented the perfect man. His genealogy doesn't go back to King David, it goes back to Adam, because he's the perfect man that's going to come. When you come to Mark, Mark's emphasis is, and remember that um, Mark is writing to the Romans. Their concept is civil service. So he presents Christ as his servant, and you'll find that word servant many, many times in Mark. And it's one of the word you'll always find in Mark, it's a word immediately. Immediately, 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 that's what a servant does. Yeah. And then, when you come to um, um, John, we know ultimately he presents him as the Son of God. So it, it all depends on the the. And again, Matthew's writing to the Jews. Uh, Mark is writing to the Romans. Luke is writing to the Greeks, who always elevated man. If you ever see their images and their, their 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 gods were really men, in in some uh, some other form. Uh, so it all depends on the purpose for which the writer was was uh, writing, and as as a result, you've got these different portraits. So because the word servant is used in respect to Christ, it doesn't mean it's inferior. That's a role he assumed, uh, so that we could have redemption.
0: I, as you were talking, I was just thinking about all the different names that God has given us uh, for himself, and it paints a portrait as you're talking about. This is just off the top sure. of my head, and I'm sure someone's probably done the study, but I'm curious if there are other religions if the god of other religions have so many names
1: yeah the, the, uh, as a matter of fact uh, the the Muslims claim that he's got over 100 names okay alright so, so they do yeah they do they do but but again uh, remember that the Muslim religion came 600 years after Christianity just remember that it's
0: kind of a copycat
1: it's a copycat religion. there's no nobody can read the, the the Quran and read the Old Testament without seeing that they borrowed but they just changed names et cetera et cetera Uh, And they're living in Old Testament times because they have no New Testament gospel. They don't have a new covenant. So that's why uh, the Muslim religion, you cut off people's hand if they steal. That's all Old Testament law. They don't have anything called grace because uh, they don't really, it's just borrowed from the Old Testament and copied and just given a different title and different name.
0: You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And the name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live interactive call-in program. There are a number of ways you can interact with us. You can call and be put live on the air, one 462 7420 or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. I'm Nathan Owens, and across the desk from me, the voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. If you are in Antigua and you are looking for A Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church. And everything that we do by the grace of God is based on Scripture. And you don't already have a church home. We would love for you to come and visit. Uh, We have resumed services as of two weeks ago, uh, obviously following the government's protocols for COVID-19. And our Sunday morning services are at 10 a.m. We would love for you to stop by and visit Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.53. Pastor, a uh, question that has come in via WhatsApp from Antigua. and says, Good night, Dr. Murphy. The spirit of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, are they the same?
1: No, they're not the same. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is a spirit that gives wisdom. But the reference that the, the person is referring to in the book of Proverbs, um, we talks about wisdom, uh, wisdom is personified and uh, those who are familiar with literary devices we know that you can give uh, um, a human characteristic to an animate uh, virtue. Uh, for example, Paul talks about oh death, where is thy sting? No death is not a person but he's personifying it and you do that really to, um, to create interest but it also kind of um, elevates the, the particular topic you're dealing with. Uh, so in the Bible, we talk about the spirit of wisdom. If you read um, Exodus 28, you'll find that it was the spirit of wisdom is mentioned there. Uh, you'll find in Deuteronomy, Joshua had the spirit of wisdom. Isaiah uh, 11, uh, and the spirit of wisdom is mentioned as one of, the, one of the attributes of the Messiah. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, um, it's also talking about the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. Now, it's a, it's a gift there. Uh, Paul prays that god would give the believers the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation the spirit of knowledge now you don't need to if the if the spirit of wisdom was the same as the holy spirit that uh, is almost superfluous because the next the first chapter says that we are sealed with the holy spirit if the believer already has the holy spirit why is he praying that, the, the, that God give the believe the Holy Spirit? But he's talking that that's a gift, the spirit of wisdom. And we know what that means when we talk about a person having the, the, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge. It means a person has the unique ability to communicate uh, truth or has an insight into things that the ordinary person doesn't seem to be uh, able to handle. So about um, wisdom uh, you find in the book of Proverbs that um, is, he described it later on. If you read the other note that came in, he says that wisdom is described as a woman. Can you read yeah, that?
0: Yeah, Proverbs three fifteen and 16 says, She is more precious than rubies, and all things thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor.
1: No, read his comments to that. Uh, are these just metaphors? Yeah, these, these are metaphors, but they're also uh, they personifying uh, the quality of wisdom. And by the way, a lot of this is clarified if you look at chapter 2. The chapter comes before that. Um, can you look at chapter 2, Proverbs chapter 2, and read verse number uh, 6 to 8?
0: Yeah. For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. And verse eight says, "He keepeth the paths of judgment and persevereth the way of his saints."
1: Very obvious is the Lord that gives wisdom. Wisdom is not the same as the Lord. Wisdom is not is a, not a, a colleague with the Lord. It's God. God's one of His attributes. But notice that God gives wisdom. He gives knowledge and He gives understanding. Right, uh so these are not to use the word sometimes we speak of a country as her or him mm-hmm. or both as as he or she uh, or some quality, but we know what we're doing we're just given a we're personifying it for uh, for emphasis and uh to make it more appealing to people so this is a use of personification um, and uh, the reason why the Lord gives this wisdom. Uh, if you go down later on in verse number 15, number 12 to 15 of the same chapter, verse 2.
0: Okay. Uh, starting in verse 12 says, to, the, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh forward things, who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Right. And, th-
1: and if you read it, verse 16, there's another person that you, you, where you get, get, get this wisdom from God.
0: To deliver thee from the strange woman, even from the stranger which flattereth with her words.
1: Good. So the whole purpose of giving wisdom and knowledge and understanding is so that you don't go down the wrong track with the evil man, or as he says here, with the strange woman. That's the reason wisdom is given. And then later on, if you look at verse number six to um, verse number nine, uh, you read that. The, uh, read there, please. Uh, chapter two nine. Yeah.
0: Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and, e- and equity, yea, every good path.
1: Again, as a result of having this wisdom, you understand what righteousness is. You'll be able to make good song judgment, and, and uh, you'll be able to treat people with equity, and you'll know the good path. So clearly, that the, the wisdom that is explained in verse chapter 3— Follows on chapter two. Remember that the, the Bible is was, not wasn't created with chapters. This was something that was done in modern times. So the theme from chapter two to dealing with wisdom coming from God is carry on into chapter three. So uh, it is the wisdom coming from God. Wisdom is not equated with God. It's just an attribute of God and a quality that God gives and a gift that God gives to people. So I hope that helps to clarify. Uh, you're not equating two the two with each other with with God.
0: He asked about uh, wisdom is given the female gender, uh, Pastor. Why do you figure the female gender, if God is, is, um, uses the male gender to describe Himself?
1: Well, I don't. I don't have any particular reason for that. I just think it's just a me- metaphorical way of uh, David speaking.
0: So we shouldn't read anything. into I uh, know
1: there's nothing it. to okay. read into but because sometimes for two, uh, God is, is is like a bird, a uh, mother hen. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean that you got feathers, you know. <laughs> it's just portrayed how a mother hand takes care, it's showing that caring part of God. And I think you'll be, you'll be you can understand why, because women generally are more caring and more tender and more affectionate. That that is that's the love side of God that is displayed. And there's nothing wrong in using female terminology, but it doesn't mean that God is feminine or there's some feminine quality. It's just that women best display this this uh, this this quality of affection. And care and tenderness
0: Uh, same listener from Antigua asks about Psalm 140 in verse 5 the question is who are gins and let me read the verse the proud have hid a snare for me and cords they have spread a net by the wayside they have set gins for me Selah
1: again I I would recommend to the person who sent in that um, question um one of the books that will really, really help you, and I think this is part of the problem—the the writer, the um, the uh, person is is having, uh, not having the proper tools uh, to really understand the meaning of Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. I would recommend strongly you get a Strong's Concordance. I think C.L.C. might have one. You might have to invest maybe over hundred dollars, but you can get a Strong's Concordance, and you would have been able to trace this word quite easily and uh, check the number of that word going to the back of it and get the etymology of the word the origin of the word the meaning of the word you discover the word jinn that's found in psalm 140 verse 7 is also found in psalm 141 verse 9 is also found in psalm 18 verse 5 proverbs 13 14 and amos 5 3 and the word for the hebrew there is the word mokesh and the word means noose or snare so the word is a snare. The jinns are snares. Uh, it's a trap, basically. That's what it is. So, uh, But that would have been quite easily understood if the person had available, were available to the the, uh, the Strong's Concordance or the Young's Concordance. But you must have tools when you're doing it. If you're going to be a carpenter, you need tools. You need a good hammer. You need a saw. You need power saw these days. You need power tools these days. And when it comes to Bible study, there certain basic tools you should have. You should have a commentary. You should have a uh, at least a strong concordance, a good Bible dictionary, and if possible, a word study, or you got a Greek lexicon, a Hebrew Bible, uh, Hebrew uh, lexicon. But those are the basic, fundamental tools if you want to be a serious Bible student, and uh, it will save you a lot of misinterpretations, um, and it will help you to get a grasp of what those words mean. When uh, because words have changed in the um, we don't talk with jinns today, but if they had put the word track T- um, trap there or, or noose or, even snare. Or, or snare or net um, it would have been much easier done. and th- the other thing I would say that's the value of having a modern translation yeah. that you can look at this same verse in a modern translation and see exactly what's the equivalent word today but th- that word jinn has to do with traps and snares
0: and one other question also el and elohim are not the same nor elohim plural to el uh, is that an error? Psalm 146, verses three, four, five, and 6.
1: Okay. Now, this is where I want to really drive home what I've been saying to this uh, person who's been sending these questions all the time. Uh, number one, clearly the person doesn't understand the Hebrew language. He, he's, he's a neophyte when it comes. Anyone would tell you who understand, uh, has a Greek lexical, a Hebrew lexicon, would tell you the word Elohim is the plural of El. Okay. So clearly he doesn't understand what he's talking about, okay? Uh, He doesn't take my word for it. So you can almost Google the word El in Elohim. You'll see that Elohim is the plural of El. So that's the first mistake that the person has made. Um, The the other thing is, um, read read the other section there again.
0: Yeah, so they... Uh, Quote Psalm 146, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And I can read those. I
1: want to read verse 5, it's a a key verse.
0: Okay, let me pull that up. Psalm 146.
1: And verse number, uh, read verse number 5.
0: Psalm 146, verse 5 says, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is the Lord his God.
1: Now, I just want to point out to the the, the person who sent in the question. There are two words for God in that passage, okay? One is the God of Jacob. The word there is El, okay. okay? The next one, whose hope is in the Lord? The word Lord there is Yahweh or Jehovah. And the next word, Jehovah, his El. So Jehovah is the, is, is, is the man's El, is Jacob's El. The other thing is the person doesn't understand Hebrew poetry, because he would have known that's what you call parallelism, synonymous parallelism, where in the first verse, we read it again, the first section of the verse.
0: Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help.
1: Now read the next part.
0: Whose hope is in the Lord. It's the same God.
1: person. That's what you call Hebrew parallelism. And this is synonymous parallelism. What is mentioned in the first part of the verse is um, illustrated in the second part. He's repeating the same thing. So if he knew Hebrew poetry, he would know that the God of Jacob, is Jehovah L? In other words, Jehovah and L are the same person. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But without knowing Hebrew parallelism, the person thinks that you you know that L is not Jehovah. But it, that's why I use this verse. This verse is saying that L is Jehovah because in verse not latter part of verse five, he said, "Whose hope is in Jehovah? His L." It's, it's so obvious that um, I am having a little problem understanding why it, it is such a Problem understanding that um, Jehovah and El are the same, but Jehovah, Lord, which is here uh, or Yahweh, is the covenant name. El has to do with His power and His might. See, so this the, the Jehovah who is coming to covenant is the same God who has all this power and all this might, but it's the same person that's being referred to. It's not two different persons, uh, and, um, and that's why. And by the way. Uh, I, I did some re, um, some checking before he came. I actually took the Strong's Concordance and checked up the amount of times that Jehovah or Yahweh is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's actually 6,425 times. 6,000. 6,425 times Yahweh is mentioned, Je- uh, which is the same as Jehovah. So the emphasis on El, all this time on El, 6,000 times that word, that name Jehovah is mentioned in the Old Testament alone. Because remember when Moses ask him what should I say is your name and, and he said I am that I am that's the same mm-hmm. word is it uh, what is it called the tetragrammaton those four Hebrew letters uh, and he said that's my name and that's what you call the word Jehovah or Yahweh it's the covenant name of God he said that's my name you want to know who I am that's my name but he's also El but he, as El he's the creator he's the one that um, has all power But in his role as the covenant God who keeps covenant with people, he is Jehovah. And that's the name he prefers to go to because God is a relational God who wants to create a relationship with us.
0: Thank you very much to the individual who has sent in that question. And they say, Pastor, I'm not opposing you. I'm learning a lot from you also. So. One
1: other thing, uh, I think he did mention that I say he has a problem somewhere in, in, the, in one of the things he said, and I, I keep saying he's having a problem. What I mean by he having a problem, I don't mean that we all got problems. But what, I'm say, what I'm trying to say him is, to him is that his problem is he seemed to value the Old Testament and think that the, Old, the New Testament is corrupt. Okay. You see, that's his problem. His problem, he's not understanding that the, the Old Testament and the New Testament form one book. The complemented. And that the New Testament enlightens and is an, a progressive revelation of the Old Testament. So that's why I say he has a problem in the fact that he is building his whole theology on the Old Testament and thinking that somehow the New Testament theology is contrary to the Old Testament. And that's because he's making a dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But they're, they're one book. And that's what I mean by having a problem. I don't mean that, um, I hope he doesn't misinterpret what I'm saying there. I'm just saying that he's having a problem with his interpretation because he doesn't have a, let me put it another way, Nathan. He doesn't have a system of hermeneutics that is in line with how you interpret the Bible. And I don't know what what, what principles he's using, he's using himself to interpret the Bible, but he certainly doesn't have good principles when it comes to interpreting the Bible.
0: You mentioned that the Old Testament and the New Testament complement together to make one book. What is the theme, or what is the story that that one book is telling us? What do we need to really grasp?
1: Well, again, remember what Christ said in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 20, twenty-four when he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus when he began to show them, beginning at Moses and the law and the prophets, and said, these wrote concerning me. The entire Old Testament, Genesis to, to Malachi, is about the Messiah, telling you about him, what, what would he be, what he'd be like, where is he coming from, what tribe he's coming from, where he would be born, uh, what, what, what kind of ministry would he, would he have, the fact that he's going to die. The whole theme, that he's prophet, priest, and king, Uh, So every time you read uh, any of the prophetic writings and you read about a king or you read about a priest or you read about a prophet, it is hammering home again the theme that the Messiah is coming. He's going to fulfill those roles. So the, the, the Old Testament is about the Messiah coming. The New Testament is about the explanation of what the Messiah has done. And that's what's all about, basically, it now begins to zero in and put the prism, where you begin to understand what the lamb was, what his death was, what his uh, character was like, what his nature, etc., etc. So what, what I might say that the, the epistles and the Old the New Testament is an exposition of the Messiah. That's what it's all about. But the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is about God sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die a substitute for death for humankind that we might be pardoned and forgiven and be able to live with God in glory forever. That's the basic theme. It's about redemption uh, and how God will redeem humankind who has sinned and gone against God.
0: So let me ask you a question now, a follow-up to that, that ties into what I hear a lot of people talking about in today's current sure. events. Is Jesus Christ, did he come for social justice?
1: Look, I, had a, I think we had a, a person who um, sent in, um, we had a conversation sometime weeks ago, months ago, where a person said that um, he's going to devote his life to social justice. What Christ came to do is to redeem humankind. He, he came to uh, have man's sins forgiven. Uh, the pursuit of human justice, if a person feels that's their calling, I don't have any problems with a person who is a Christian wanting to make things in society better for everybody and having a, a kind of equality and, and uh, um, try help to resolve injustice, etc. But that's not the mission. The mission is to call men out of a doomed world that is under the wrath of God and say to those men, escape the wrath that's going to come. This world is not going to improve. This world is going to get worse. It's not going to get better. The Bible tells us that this world ends in a a judgment and that uh, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. One cannot read the the writings of Paul or the book of Revelation without understanding that this world is is headed towards a final classicism, doom. And our job as Christians is not to make people feel comfortable down here. Our job is to call them out uh, to Christ because the only rescue plan is going to be when Christ raptures his church and takes his church out that's the hope that we have we don't have hope in social justice we don't have so hope in in men our hope is in god and the whole story of the bible is about escaping the judgment to come flee the wrath put your faith and trust in god and so that we can be with him in glory but personally uh that is not my mission my mission is to share the gospel and to bring men to faith in Jesus Christ. If Christians, people become believers and a man wants to be a lawyer or he wants to be a social worker and he wants to, as part of his Christian mission, um, try to work to improve the legal position or even the police force, whatever. I don't have a problem with that. But that's not the mission of the church. The church mission is a mandate to declare the gospel of Christ, to call men to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's our mission, and we must keep that mission central to all that we do. We must not get sidetracked in the pursuit of all of these other uh, things that are good in themselves, but not the main job. Because even if we had social justice in the, in the world, perfect social justice, that doesn't solve the problem of a man's eternity. So the church must be very careful to keep the, the focus where the Bible puts the focus on the gospel and bringing men to faith in Jesus Christ uh, and not be distracted by getting and engaging in other activities that are noble in themselves and good in themselves but are substituting the best uh, for the good.
0: So I'm understanding you to say that you can't have true, lasting, beneficial change apart from Jesus Christ.
1: No. I, I, as a matter of fact, I would say this. The believer is supposed to be salt in the earth. He's supposed to be light in the earth. I think when a person gets becomes a Christian, he is salt where he is and he's light where he is. But that's different than the individual and the church. I'm talking about the mission of the church. If an individual becomes deeply concerned about injustice in society, it's like, you know, it's like uh, Wilberforce. Yeah. who uh became concerned about slavery, We all know the story. He was a parliamentarian, but a christian, and that 's why you have a problem with people saying that you can 't bring Christian principles within parliament if he 'd never done that, where would we be today it 's such gross. folly today, uh, but again, he saw it as his mission uh, and he 's not a pastor uh, he is a believer who 've come to faith he 's in government he sees injustice and he wants to help to remedy that and he does and uses influence to do it I have no qualms with that that was his mission but I would do have a problem if a person was called to be the pastor and he makes his whole life not preaching the gospel but pursuit of something else that's the problem I have but individual believers are called by God Uh, a doctor for example a man calls me a doctor and he goes into a hospital and he sees practices that are in there that are bad wrong corruption I think, as part of that, he may want to use its influence to bring about change. Nothing wrong with that. That's his, as a doctor, that's his role. Uh, but we must not confuse the individual role and the mission given to the church we must uh, make those things very clear and we must differentiate between those things.
0: You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you to those who have sent in questions. I have a number of questions here already from last week. We're going to cover those and then we're going to grab any that are coming in tonight. Uh, The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.15. Pastor, a text message from St. Kitts. If a believer is forgiven why at the judgment seat of Christ do they still have to give an account for how they live? Can you give an example like what would be asked?
1: Okay, well look, um, I think a person needs to understand that when you look at the biblical doctrine of redemption and salvation, it's in three tenses. Okay. God deals with our past, God deals with our present, and God deals with the future. The, the, the We are redeemed when we put our faith and trust in Christ and all sins are forgiven. Uh, that means our guilt and our condemnation. There's now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So as far as our sin is concerned, it is under the blood. Christ paid the debt uh, for our sin. But salvation is not just about dealing with the past. It has to do with your present. This has to do with sanctification. Because after a person is saved from sin, his goal should be uh, to pursue righteousness and holiness. Holiness has to do with my relation with God. Righteousness has to do with my life before men and how I treat men. Uh, So that uh, salvation is not just about uh, dealing with the sin problem. It has to be developing your character, and it has to be developing your your, your personhood. And then, of course, it has to do with your future. So you're saved and pardoned from your sin in the past you're now in the present being sanctified or being saved from the power or the dominating power of sin in your life. That is the part that is now working. But then you're going to be saved from the very presence of sin when you go to live with God in glory. Now, the point I want to make here is this. For the time we got saved, God is moving us in the direction of holiness and righteousness, okay? Uh, The future involves rewards, uh, we, we're serving God, and uh, we're glad that we're not going to go to hell, of course. But the Christian life is more than just not going to hell. It's not just a ticket or insurance policy where you don't go to hell, and therefore that's the end of the Christian life. God is bringing us down here in this present form to greater conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. We're trying to become more Christ-like. That's what God is doing. If it was only that God forgive your sin and that was the end of you, when he saved you, he'll take you to heaven. But the fact that he let you remain down here, uh, he because he's, he's changing you and conforming you to Christ and making you more like Christ, he's working on you. That's called sanctification. And then, of course, you're here not only for yourself, uh, that you're saved, you're here to rescue others, and that's your mission, to be a witness and a testimony to try to evangelize. But um, the, the Bible makes it quite clear that all of us still are going to stand before God and give an account for what happens after we became Christians. And why we do that, uh, why he does that, is to determine rewards. Remember that uh, in the kingdom, uh, we are going to have different assignments. In some of the parables, our Lord illustrated that one will be given five cities, ten cities. Of course, he's just saying that responsibility is dependent on what we do here. So what I'm going to be, my role in the future, in the kingdom... Is not is dependent on how I serve the Lord here. It, it is part of the reward system, uh, etc. Um, then the Bible talks about crowns that believers are going to get. And then don't forget this, there are going to be degrees of glory. Uh, every Christian is not going to look like, the, 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 like every other Christian. The, the, the more we have done for God and the more we've had the right motive in doing for God, we'll get greater glory. Uh, so, rewards and glory. Is, is what uh, is involved in this whole press uh, process of uh, after we saved No, no. Question: What are we going to be judged for? Well, if you look at Corinthians chapter nine, first Corinthians chapter uh, chapter three, sorry, verse nine to fifteen. Could you read that?
0: Yeah, it says, "For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me." As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, for every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire sh- shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire.
1: Yeah, Paul is talking about we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, those of you that are familiar with the word judgment seat is the beam seat. And again, uh the word beamer, um those that do any study will know that it, it's the, the the uh at the Olympics, basically the Greek Olympics. The beamer had seen it was where the athletes would come in and be given rewards. Okay. This not a this is not a seat of judgment in, in for damnation or condemnation. This is this is a, a judgment of deciding who gets rewards and what re- rewards you get. Um, the other thing that uh Paul points out that the foundation is Christ right? We're building on that foundation. After a person gets saved, you're saved, and the foundation of your life is Christ. But you're building a life on that foundation, and that life you're building depends on what kind of service you're rendering to the Lord, what kind of works you're doing for the Lord. That's why uh, Paul talks about in verse 13, the fire shall try every man's work. What was he said there, verse 13?
0: Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort
1: What sort? Notice the word there, see? It has to do with quality. So it's not just that I do a lot of work, you know, and I look at the quantity of work I've done for him. It has to do with the quality of work, because I could do a lot of work, but not do it with the right spirit, with the right heart, with the right motive. And that's why he said the sort, the quality of the work that we do is, is coming under judgment. And, and then he says um, in verse number. Um, 13 as well The the the, the works of man sh- uh, The fire should try Every man's works And then in verse 13a Every man's work shall be made manifest uh, Notice again That it's not the man That is being tried It's the works That the man has done In other words so Here I am a pastor Or here I am a missionary Here I am a radio presenter or a person who runs a radio station, and I've been ministering for 20 years uh, in a case like that, Uh, I've been serving the Lord. I've been telling people I've been serving the Lord, right? Now at the judgment seat, that work is being examined, Hmm. right? What was my motive? Uh, What did I do? Why did I do it? Uh, And so on. And I might discover in that moment that I've done a work, but my motive was all wrong. Yeah. Sobering thought. Sobering. It's a, that's what, it's, what sort it is, yeah. and everything should be made manifest, right? This is where it comes down to deal with, with, with motive.
0: No more fooling, man. At that point,
1: right? And then you notice that Paul uh, says in verse read verse fourteen,
0: verse fourteen says, "If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward."
1: See, it's about rewards. So, and, and Paul takes a picture where uh, people are building on Christ. Some of are using wood, hay, and stubble. Some using gold, silver, and precious stone. It goes through the fire of judgment, and he's just using a, a picture and symbols, but you know if if wood here and stubble goes through the fire, what's going to happen to it? It's gone up in smoke, yeah but gold, silver, and precious stone, even though they go through the fire they become refined, so that's the whole thing he's trying to say that as, when we come when we come to this judgment, we'll see what was really have worths in it, substance, quality to it, and that which was just pure nothing, a lot of talk, uh, a lot of image. But no substance whatsoever. That's what Paul is talking about here. So the believer is is going to be judged as a result of what happens after he got saved. Let me use an illustration again. You got saved a person gets saved at eighteen. They live to be eighty-five. What did you do for the Lord during that period of time? Your your life is coming up for review, not to damn you, but to see the quality of the work you've done for the Lord, because you are saved to serve all safe to serve that's the necessity of the judgment seat of Christ and um, uh, it's not so much asking the question what kind of question he would ask the person it's, it's actually examining the kind of work and ministry the person has done for the conversion until the Lord returns so that's what it is all about
0: thank you to the individual from St. Kitts that sent that question in Another question sent in by that same listener, Pastor. Can the rapture take place before the unreached hear the gospel? That's a great question. I've heard people debate that before. Uh, They follow up because the Bible says the gospel must be preached to the whole world. Then the end will come or will end up in the tribulation.
1: Yeah, look, if the gospel must be preached to the end of the world before um, the Lord comes back, uh, it means there must be at least... Uh, it could be imminent then. The Lord's return cannot be imminent. I mean, Paul thought that the Lord could return any time. Your disciples thought that. So something is wrong with that doctrine, that the gospel has to go to the end of the world. What the person fails to understand, if, that verse is found in Matthew chapter 24, um, verse 14. Could you read that?
0: Yeah. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall come the end.
1: Now read the next verse.
0: When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Read
1: the other verses and uh, come continue. Yeah, continue.
0: Then let them which be in Judea flee into the Verse the 21. Uh-huh. Let him which is on the housetop come down and take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field turn back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor no nor shall ever be
1: again, if you also look in um the same passage chapter twenty four um if you look at verse um uh, verse four verse three verse three reads.
0: And he sat upon the mountain of olives, and the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the
1: world? Again, notice that this has to do with the sign of his, sec- his coming. This has to do with the rapture, because there's nothing, no signs. To, 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 so this is dealing this. Verse 14 has to do in the context of the tribulation period. And you remember in uh, the book of Revelation, 144,000 select Jews are going to be sealed by God, and they will become the evangelists during this period to carry the gospel to the end of the world. That's what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with the present period. That has to do with the rapture. There are no pre-rapture signs. All the signs relate to the second coming. Uh, so, to use that verse uh, to, to say the Lord cannot return for the rapture be- until the whole world has been evangelized is to miss the context of what the passage is Is, is there. Uh, you'll also read in the book of uh, Revelation when Angel is given the gospel of the kingdom uh, and he said that the, he carried the gospel of the kingdom as well. It's also mentioned in Revelation. So, this has to do with the fact that after the church is raptured, now the message is that the kingdom is coming Because the millennium came, comes after the seven-year tribulation period the, God now sends these evangelists all over the world To say let the kingdom is come; The millennium is coming Prepare for the Messiah, basically And we know that as a result of their ministry A great multitude that no man can number From every tribe, from every nation From every tongue, from every dialect uh, A great host will, be, uh, will come to faith in Christ During the tribulation period So this has to do with the gospel getting out uh, uh, prior to the Millennium Kingdom coming. But before the Millennium c- Kingdom, you've got the tribulation period, and you've got the evangelists, the 144,000 Jews that become the evangelists that go out into the whole world. So I think, it's, it, again, it's conflating the two, the rapture and the tribulation. And they want to know what's the signs of your coming, right? This has to do with the signs that relate to the second coming, which is after the tribulation period.
0: And another question Uh, what was Pharaoh's government like? Did God approve of it? And what type of government was it?
1: Well, again, uh, I did some reading on on that, and it depends on which period in the Egyptian history, whether it be the Old Kingdom, um, uh, whether it be the Middle Kingdom, uh, or the the new, uh, what dynasty you're talking about. But substantially, uh, the kingdom of Egypt was a monarchy. And uh, ruled by a king, as, as you know, Pharaoh is a king, uh, but it, um, whether God approved it or not, uh, God established human government, and any government that is there the authority, God has established the authority. Uh, the, the whole because government is instituted by God, ordained by God uh, to, to punish evil and to uh, recognize good so uh, but in terms of the Egypt itself, um uh we don't have in scripture any indication that uh God approved the pharaohs that were on the throne. Now he approved human government, doesn't mean he approved the individual. But when you read the story uh in the in the Old Testament, clearly um the Egyptian pharaohs uh sought to destroy uh the Israelis, not only kept them in bondage but also try to commit genocide when they try to take the infanticide, when they take the, the children that were two years and younger, try to destroy them. So, and Egypt, by the way, is always perceived as the a force that is trying to fight against um, God's people in the Old Testament. It's not so much the form of government, monarchy, because Israel's a monarchy as well. What I think we need to understand that the pharaohs themselves. Uh, the thing about Egypt is their, their gods uh, and the pharaohs and the worship of their gods. Uh, I think I mentioned another program that when we free the ten plagues that uh, was executed against Egypt to liberate Israel and emancipate the Jews and send them into the Promised Land, uh, God said, I will execute my judgment against Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt uh, in the book of Exodus. And those ten plagues, I think I've said this on another occasion, each plague was God defeating an Egyptian god. Uh, for example, the, the water was turned into blood. Uh, and the, the god that is being attacked there is Nilus, which is the river god, the river god of Nile, and he was able to turn the water into blood. The frogs, when he brought frogs to the water to spread the land, uh, the goddess that the god that he was defeating there, the god of goddess of uh, reproduction, a god called Het. Uh, you know, I can go down line by line, and each one of these judgments was actually the defeat of a god that the pharaohs were worshiping. And then, to add to that, by the way, um, uh, these gods were Ra and Sirah, and, and uh, Shu and Typhon and Puta, and Seb and. Uh, Kephara and Hept all of these are, are different gods that were brought but another thing that uh, is interesting when you study the Egyptian history is that you know we have a trinity they had a trinity as well uh, their trinity was a, a guy, uh, one god was called Isaris. Um he was the main god and he was killed by Set and then um, Horus uh, his son uh kill set and resurrect-set. and then you had a, the, the the mother god called Isis so you had Isis Horus and uh Osiris these are the this is what we call the trinity in uh Egyptian uh theology it's interesting by the way that you got um Isis which is god the father you had the son god which was Horus and then you had the mother god who was Isis exact- exactly what has happened within the 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 mother son and daughter Mother, son, and um, God. Who does that remind you of? God, the mother, and the son.
0: The Trinity?
1: No, no, not the tri- That is the Catholic Oh, okay, okay. Thing, you see okay. what I'm saying? That's why if you read Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylons,
0: right, he showed
1: yep. you quite clearly that this concept that you've got a father God, you've got a mother who has a son God, this is all borrowed out of paganism. It was... Actually uh, brought into the, the Catholic Church. Interesting. That's why they put so much emphasis on Mary and have her as what the co redemptrix in, in heaven and got her as the Queen of Heaven. But if you read Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylon, you see the paganism that was brought into the Catholic Church and the the, the title is used on the uh, the high priest uh, Pontifex Maximus was the name of the the the, uh, the pagan god that was brought in and given to the on the mitre. Of the of the of the uh, the, the, the pope basically, so it's, um so when it comes to Egypt when it comes to their government it's just a monarchy but it's a government that fought against the people of God and uh, God liberated them uh, but what really is concerned about Egypt was the execution of God and His judgment dealing with their gods etc cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, the time across the Eastern Caribbean, and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 834. Thank you to the individuals who have sent in questions thus far. We will get to your questions very shortly. We've got uh, just a message from Anguilla from last week, and then we're going to catch up with questions from this week. Uh, Pastor, this is referencing, if you remember, we were discussing the situation with Jonah last week. Good evening, gentlemen. I'm studying the Bible with J. Vernon McGee, and we are in the book of Jonah at that moment. It will be interesting to hear what he has to say about the sailors in the boat with Jonah, whether or not they were saved. To me, the fact that they cried out to God, the God of Jonah, I believe they were saved. I also think that there is more evidence that these sailors were saved more than than any evidence that Nicodemus was saved. He showed up at Jesus' burial, but there is no evidence of him saying anything other than asking Jesus a question. And while we're on that, can I ask if you think King Saul was saved? Thanks, Pastor. I'm learning a lot from you on the program.
1: Look, let's deal with the sailors for just a moment. We mentioned last week that there's no clear, definitive uh, answer to that question. Uh, I think well Nathan mentioned that the word that is used there of worship indicates that they express a profound reverence for God when they pray to God. But again, that you're dealing with a physical calamity, a crisis, where a person is, the storm is coming, the boat is going to go under. They're terrified that they're going to die. And in that moment, they they cry out to God for God to deliver them, and and God certainly delivers. Uh, The question of whether or not that is saving faith, uh, they're not crying out about their sins and confessing their sins and asking pardon for their sins. What they want is a rescue program. And it's like you being in a, a boat and um, you're going through a storm and you think the boat is going to sing. You would cry for God. I would too. Yeah, but does, does, that mean, does that mean that it's saving faith? That's where you have the problem. I'd like to say this as well, Nathan. The ultimate purpose of the book of Jonah uh, from the New Testament is that the story there with Jonah was designed remember what Jesus said uh, they wrote concerning me mm-hmm. it was a picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and uh, that was the real purpose of giving the book of Jonah it's not about the sailors being saved etc etc but no one knows whether or not this was genuine con- Did these guys who got saved in the boat and came to shore what happened two weeks after or a month after was it just that they got rescued, and then their faith evanesced yeah. the moment that things return to normal become you know like sunshine believers yeah, who <laughs> right yeah. so that's why we can we can say that um the other thing Vernon McGee, let me just suggest to, to the person who said that and and speaking in respect to myself, let the Bible be your final authority don't let it be me, don't let it be Vernon McGee or any other preacher because they say that, therefore. It becomes infallible. We are all fallible human beings. I admire Mr. McGee. Uh, he's a f- great preacher, no question about that. But please, if he just tell you they were saved, don't go saying that they're saved because McGee said they're saved. If there's no biblical evidence for, at least hold that in limbo. The other thing that, uh, other question that was mentioned uh, about Nicodemus, what he said there?
0: Yeah. Uh he says Nicodemus showed up at Jesus' burial, but there is no evidence of him saying anything other than asking Jesus a
1: question. Well, that's not true either. Uh, you find reference to Nicodemus three places. Okay. John 3 1, where you have the encounter about being born again. Mm-hmm. Now, let me just remind you that Nicodemus is a religious leader, he's a Pharisee, he's a teacher. And he's living in a time when Christ is perceived to be a deceiver and a false messiah. And there is a plan to get rid of him, to kill him. It took tremendous boldness for this man to actually go into Jesus, to talk to Jesus. So that's the thing. that He had courage that is just out of this world. Uh, The other thing is, he defends Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 50 to 52. Read that.
0: Yeah, John chapter 7, verse 50 says, Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus, but oh, it's Nicodemus who came to Jesus Uh by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Verse 52, they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look out, for Galilee ariseth no prophet.
1: Now, if you read before, these are the religious leaders and the Pharisees. Here is he's one of them. We're told that he's one of them. He's part of this whole system. But notice that he is defending Christ. They're saying this man is a deceiver, this man is false. He said, but how are we going to judge a man before we hear him? Yeah. Now, you talk about boldness and courage, knowing that these are the men that are planning to, to kill the Messiah. So you talk about a person who's willing to stand up to defend I'm not saying he's, uh, he's come to faith as yet, but clearly it's more than just seeing Jesus at night and for his burial. Here he's defending the Messiah and saying, listen, we can't make our judgment on this man without hearing what this man has to say. Our law does not permit that. He's defending Christ. And then, of course, you come to John uh, 19, 38 to 42. Can you read that for just a minute? John.
0: Uh, and after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus, and there also there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and an hundred pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury.
1: These two men, take take, take, take for just a moment the, the amount of courage that was required. None of the disciples had enough guts to stand even when he was crucified. That's true. These men, even after his death, Nicodemus being one of them is actually putting his life in jeopardy going to this man that was just crucified and rejected. He's actually the courage this man displays is just out of this world. To I be wonder there, if honestly. he,
0: as a religious leader, was supposed to be touching a dead body that had just been crucified either.
1: Well, if he is a Jew and he's a Pharisee, that's a similarly unclean. Yeah. The other thing is to bring a hundred pounds. Of this, you thought, well, man, a man, a man's religion, when it touches pocket, is very sincere, mm. and here's a man willing to invest in the death of his son, of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well. So it's not just that he came by night; he defended him, and then at the last moment, when everybody abandoned him, he's there and he's investing in his burial. Uh, even at this point, all we can say is that he was searching for truth; he came into contact with Christ. But the, the real possibility is that Nicodemus came to faith and trust, and I think that there's more evidence on this basis for Nicodemus perhaps being converted than the sailors who just in a moment all they said, "Save us from, from, from this this uh, this storm." So I think that um, it's while well, we cannot say definitively because the Bible doesn't say that uh, Nicodemus became a disciple. But the evidence uh, is leading that direction that perhaps he came to true faith in Jesus Christ.
0: Thank you to the individual who sent in those thoughts and that questions. We really appreciate your listening from Anguilla. Uh, And then, Pastor, the final part of their question was, King Saul, whether he was
1: saved? Well, again, there's no verse in the Bible that says he was or he wasn't. Remember that King Saul was chosen by God to be Israel's first king. Remember that he was a great warrior, and he defeated the enemies of Israel, etc., etc. Remember also that King Saul was anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon King Saul. Remember that. Remember that he willfully disobeyed God in respect to the Amalekites. Uh, he also imposed on the priest's office where he offered sacrifice when he should have waited on Samuel, Uh, And God took the kingdom from him. He also developed what you might call a jealous paranoia of David because he saw David as his rival and he tried to kill David several times. But we also told something interesting that the spirit of God left Saul. Now, I'll tell you why that's interesting because Romans 8 says, if any man hath not the spirit of God, he is none of his that's the verse, that I think, that, that bothers me a little bit as to whether or not he was truly converted. Would that be referring to the Old
0: Testament or the New? Because the Spirit of God came and went in the Old, right?
1: Yeah, but in the case of, uh, it, it came upon person for service, but it, it left him specifically because of his disobedience. Okay. Right? Now, David, when David had sinned, David said, take not the Holy Spirit from me, right? But that verse uh, is a verse that caused me concern. Uh, the other thing is that he is not mentioned. In the Hall of Fame, in in, um, in, Hebrews. in in Hebrews, look at Hebrews chapter eleven, verse thirty-two.
0: Uh, I will, Hebrews eleven thirty-two. Two says, and what shall I say? What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah. Of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets.
1: You notice that David Skips is mentioned, yeah. Samuel is mentioned, but Saul is not mentioned. Again, that sends me a, a red light. The other thing is that, remember that King Saul came to the point where not only did God leave him, the Spirit left him, uh, the, the God would not speak to him, neither by prophet, nor by seer, nor by prayer. It was like, like remember that. And the other thing, he ends up going to a to. A cult person, mm. a witch, to get information about Samuel. But here's the one verse that gives me hope that he might be a Christian. Mm. I'll tell you why. When Samuel came up and uh, Samuel said, well, you troubled me. And then Samuel said, by tomorrow, you're going to be with me. Mm. That is found in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 27 verse 15. That gives me hope that it's either that he is saying, Samuel was saying, well, you're going to die like me, or you're coming to the same place I am. And if he's coming to the same place he was, he certainly would be a, a, a person who was saved. So this is the one redeeming verse that lets me believe there's a, a window of opportunity that maybe, uh, in spite of his disobedience, uh, et etc., et cetera, Saul was still converted because he's going to the same place as Samuel. Yeah.
0: Pastor, we have a caller calling from Bendels Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please.
1: Good evening, Good evening sir.
2: Good program, as usual. Thank you. Uh, Pastor? Yes, sir. Uh, when i no, he didn't talking about, this didn't just say the Therese was saving one, and explaining, because uh-huh. he have a series going on about the book of Jonah,
1: uh-huh.
2: and he had talking about, after they set up, see the miracle that Jonah got do with him, after, the, after the, they cast the Lord and fallen Jonah, uh-huh. and they see the miracle that God does Jonah challenge for them in the city, so they become fearful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we're, so. we're
0: having a little trouble understanding. I don't know if you can get a little closer to your phone.
2: Okay, w- what, I, what I don't know, uh, I see what I are talking about. We hear me good?
1: Yeah, I hear you know.
2: Yeah, you are talking about after the sale of the Lord and Father Jonah.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And Jonah explained to them what happened, what he do. Uh-huh. They become fearful. And after he say Kazi him in the and the so they become faithful. they call on the God of
1: Jonah.
2: Uh-huh. So he said that he believed. After this miracle, they believe. they got They get saved. Uh-huh. But he didn't just say they were saved in the beginning because remember he said they were pagans. Uh
1: huh.
2: Yeah, so that was he had explaining.
1: Yeah. To the yeah. But that that's a subjective interpretation yeah. uh, because as I pointed out, um, I hope you're, you're listening. It's possible for me in a minute. I, I put yourself in that boat, and uh, what you're really concerned about is that the boat don't collapse and the storm doesn't overwhelm you what you really want is physical deliverance you want to be saved not saved from your sin not saved eternally what they are asking God to do is to deliver them so that they don't drown in the sea so that is why I'm saying to you that it's still a subjective thing nobody can speak with any certainty and the fact that they're called upon God doesn't mean that they were calling to him in faith to redeem them to save them from their sins that's the point I'm making because there are people who call upon God every night. But you, you talk to them and ask them, are you saved? They tell you, no, I'm not saved. I know I'm not saved. Uh, and there are people who ask the Lord to deliver them from something and the Lord delivers them, but that doesn't mean that they're converted. So that's the point I'm making. But it's a subjective thing, interpretation, and we can't speak with any certainty on the matter. And the reason why I said that we've got to be very watchful about men, including myself, by the way, The Bible has to be our final authority. Uh, We listen to men, and uh, we interpret. Men interpret the Bible, but if the Bible is not clear on a particular issue, uh, uh, like this one, we can't come to anything final and definitive. So, if uh, if suppose McGee said that these men were saved, but suppose you hear another Bible teacher saying, "Well, it's possible these men were saved physically, but not saved spiritually." Uh, that's not a matter for debate and discussion and, and get into anger about. That's something to say, you know what? Uh, it's a different interpretation, and the Bible is not clear on this matter. So it has to do with the person's um, subjective opinion on the matter. Follow me?
2: I understand I what you're saying because, as you say, a junkie a we will grab enough
1: straw. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> See, it's not—it's not so much a moment, you know. I mean, we get saved in a moment, but it's what happens after a person calls upon God and asks for forgiveness and pardon. You know, it's not because it's not everybody say, "Lord, Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he made that very, very clear. You know, it's yeah, what yeah. follows as a result of that. Because genuine faith will always result result in a changed life.
2: Anyone mm-hmm. that has
1: genuine faith in Christ and in God their life must change. If their life haven't changed, I don't care how long they've called, when they've called, and how often they've called. It is not a genuine conversion. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's different.
2: I so understand talking about Pastor, I believe, what you say, because there's no record showing that after they, they move, they, they get away from that storm. If there's they, no they record showing that they get saved. And not yeah.
1: sure that so I and and as I believe what you say. Yeah. But again, I'm not I'm not uh am not knocking Mr. McGee to be honest with you, because as I said I really enjoy him myself. But I'm just saying that we can't speak with certainty where the Bible uh is not very, very clear. We just have to allow for opinions yeah, yeah, that differ I mean. on that matter.
2: Yeah, we to for that day. Okay. Thank you for, for the
1: explanation. And God bless you. you know Thanks for you. calling. Okay, good program. i continue to up here. Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you for the encouragement. Have a blessed night and continue to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We have seven minutes left on the program tonight, Pastor. Uh, WhatsApp question that has come in tonight from Antigua. Uh, good night uh, to the program. Question, which day is the original Sabbath Please refer to John chapter 20, and I believe these might be the two verses in that chapter that they're referencing. John chapter 20 and verse number one says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And then skipping down to verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, were the disciples assembled for fear of the Jews, then came Jesus and stood in their midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you.
1: I am not too sure what the the point is there. The Sabbath has always been the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. So I hope that is. I hope the person is not inferring that the you know if you read some of the um, the reformers and they talk the Sabbath, uh, they're not talking about. They mean Sunday. It's okay. just that they think They use In other words When they talk the Christian Sabbath They talk Sunday Not talk the Sabbath Sabbath
0: But that's not biblical
1: No The Sabbath is always the Sabbath I mean Sunday is Sunday And Sabbath is Saturday So when we worship on Sunday We are not worshiping on the Sabbath We worship on the day To honor the Lord's resurrection uh, So um, We are not saying that Sunday is the Sabbath Now the Sabbath was changed Sabbath was never changed Sabbath was always Sabbath Which is a Saturday Monday is the first of the week uh, so I hope I hope that there's no um, misunderstanding in regards to that. But I do know that when you read certain books, uh, and by the way, that's why sometimes the Seventh-day Adventists would quote some of the oldsters saying that they talk the Sabbath, <laughs> and they don't understand the context of what the guy was saying. Uh, the Christian Sabbath, uh, they would use the, that word in turn, but referring to the Lord's Day as opposed to the Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath.
0: And another WhatsApp message that has come from Antigua, Good night, gentlemen. Pastor Murphy, I am getting a lot of fight down in my church. I can't relate to anyone that goes there, not even the pastor. I love God. I want to serve him, but it's hard doing it there. What should I do?
1: Well, I don't know the nature of your problem, and I don't want to prejudge what's going on. I I would say to you that if you have a church, I don't care who you are, Um, is that church falling in line with Scripture. That's the first thing that is vitally important. You've got to establish the reality that the church where I'm attending, the pastor is preaching the Word, and he's preaching the Word, rightly dividing the Word of truth. That is central. I can't—if you're in a church where that is not so, my counsel to you is very basic and very fundamental. You need to find a good gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching church— and leave that ministry if it is going contrary to the word. Again, I don't know what else. if if you've got a situation where it's um, chaos in terms. Take take the finances again. I don't know. I know of things that happened to one of the big churches here, and I I learned about it, and I can't figure out how people allowed it to go in that direction, where it doesn't seem to be had to be any accountability. Uh, So I'm not too sure if you're dealing with that aspect of it, but I would say to you again, there has to be financial accountability and there has to be transparency when it comes to the finances of a church. The People ought to know what comes in, how it is spent. They ought to be able to query and question those kind of things uh, so they know what is happening to the money that they have brought into God's house. So I don't know if it's a matter of transparency when it comes to finances. I don't know if it's a matter of immorality. I don't know if it has to do with that. But if you have a pastor who is not Uh, is fooling around with um, any of his members, you don't belong in that church. You find a different church. So I am not too sure what the nature of the problem is. uh, So I really can't say to you um, what to do. Uh, I would say this generally speaking. If you're not comfortable in a ministry and in a church, find a church where you feel you can serve, where you're at peace with God, and you're comfortable... uh, And when I speak comfortable, I mean you're at ease, there's not tension, there's not war, there's not fighting. Uh, I would say to you that that's vitally important. But until I know the nature of what you're talking about, um, that's my general opinion in that regard. But find a place where you can serve and find a place where people are held accountable and where the Word of God is preached and expounded.
0: Thank you for that question. Uh, We hope that that is an encouragement to you. Uh, Pastor WhatsApp from Antigua, quick question, was Jonah alive in the fish?
1: Again, we don't know, if you read the passage and you read different commentaries, some people believe that Jonah literally died, some people believe that uh, Jonah survived and God kept him alive. Uh, this is one of those areas where the, 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 there 's there's no absolute as far as what is important uh, in regard to Jonas is that the it, it, the Bible says that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights it doesn 't says he was dead in the belly of the whale, so it 's not that he had to die the The, the analogy between christ 's death and Jonah. Is that the same way Jonah was in the, in the belly of the whale three days and night? Christ would be in the grave three days and three nights That's, that's the analogy That's the extent of the analogy uh, So we don't know I, I don't know um, And I don't of anybody that knows really It's just a matter of uh, interpreting the passage and um, But if you believe he did I don't have a problem with that either It's, it's a greater miracle uh, if you don't believe that he did, but you do, be- you must believe that he was in the belly of the whale, I'll tell you that. Uh, if you tell me you don't believe in that, no, no, we, we've got war because you've actually taken a type that belongs to Christ and you're questioning the authority of the Bible. And Christ himself is the one who said that Jonah was in the belly. So the moment you said it didn't happen, you're, you're questioning the integrity of Christ and the impeccability of Christ. And that puts you in the realm outside uh, the Christian faith. So I hope we are clear on that matter.
0: Pastor, in the last minute of the program, can you summarize what true saving salvation is?
1: When a person uh, wants to be saved, uh, he must come to an understanding that he's a sinner before God. Uh, he must be brought to the point where he is convicted of his sin. And when he is aware of his sinful nature, he's aware of, his, uh, of the depth of his problem, and he feels guilty and he feels convicted. Uh, the Holy Spirit's job is to draw that person to Christ. And he points you to Jesus Christ as the only Savior and the only solution to your problem. The problem is sin. Sin has to be pardoned. Sin has to be forgiven. And by the way, let me just say this, Christianity is the unique religion when it comes to the whole question of sin. The Muslims don't deal with the sin question in terms of how you can be forgiven. Uh, they don't believe in a vicarious atonement. Uh, the Hindus have no place for dealing with sin. As far as they deal with sin, it's through karma and through reincarnation. The only A religion that deals with this whole matter of the sin question is the Christian faith. And it says to you that Jesus Christ died as your substitute so that your sins can be pardoned and forgiven and that God himself accept that sacrifice on your behalf. And when you put your faith and trust in what Christ has done, you become a believer and he becomes your savior.
0: Pastor, if I have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior and then I find myself backsliding or sinning?
1: Do I have to get resaved? Absolutely not. We confess our sins before God. We come and He cleanses and He forgives us. We are His sons. He is our Father. We don't become disinherited because we've committed sin.
0: Thank you very much for your clear biblical teaching tonight, Pastor. We look forward to next week. Thank you for your questions tonight. We really appreciate it. And I believe we are all caught up with questions as of right now. And so if you have questions between now and next week, go ahead and send them in. We'll start out the program with them. Otherwise, we will continue picking up with our teaching. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us for today's program.